Ready? Great. Thank you for that, Susan. It's uh, good, uh, good stuff. Good stuff. All of it, I think, it, we all would agree, really clear. I mean, like, there's probably not, not a lot of explanation needed or anything, but we'll, we'll spend a few minutes on it anyway, all the same. Um, but, uh, but no, great to be with you guys. Great to be here. Uh, blessings to those who are online this morning, too. But um, new series today. So during fall, we are going to be going through the series in Revelation 1 through 3. And it's called What Jesus Looks For in a Church. Right? And I, I imagine everyone who has ever gone to a church, whether they're a, a Christian or not, a religious person or not, if you've gone to a church, there's probably something that you are looking for. There might be a list. Maybe you're kind of conscious of what those things are. Maybe you would only kind of recognize them if they were spelled out. And you'd be like, yeah, I guess, I guess that is what I'm looking for. But one of the things that really fascinates me about this passage is uh, these three chapters, they detail what Jesus looks for in church. Uh, they talk about the qualities, there's seven of them, the qualities that Jesus is looking for in a church. And this, this beginning part of Revelation, it constitutes these seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches. They were listed here in this passage. Uh, real churches that existed in the first and the second century. Uh, but there's, there's seven of them, which is significant too. We'll talk a little bit about symbolism here in a minute. But seven in the Bible is symbolic of completion. So these are letters to all churches at all times. And this, this is a valuable, valuable piece of scripture for us, friends. Uh, you know, as a church, we don't want to be people who, who play church, right? If we're going to do this thing, we want to do this thing. And our goal as we go through this series this fall is going to grow, the goal to be to grow more and more into the sort of church that Jesus would have us to be, right? And when I say when I say the church, I mean you and I, right? It is made up of the sum of its parts, and this has to do with you and I and how we pursue our apprenticeship with Jesus. So that's, that is what the weeks ahead are all about. Now, those seven letters, those come in chapters two and three. This morning we're in chapter one, and it's going to be kind of an introduction to the series and to Revelation in general. But the big thing here that we see in chapter 1, the big thing that I want you to kind of focus on is this, this book of Revelation starts with Jesus giving a picture of himself. Before there's any other instruction, before anything else follows, Jesus gives John this vision of who he is. And I, I, I want to relate that back to what we said in our last series about the Lord's Prayer. You remember where that starts, right? We start there also with a picture of who God is. We start by reflecting on who God is as our Father. And in Revelation, we come to this place in the Bible where it's talking to these churches who are in a tremendous amount of suffering. There's a lot going on there that we'll hear about as we get into the different letters. There's a lot going on there. And what Jesus first gives them is this picture of himself. Now, not to take away from you know, our, our need to hear a word from Scripture or our need to find encouragement and word and sacrament when we come together in worship, uh, to take nothing away from the need we have to be in small group, to be in a relationship with each other, nothing. But uh, I want to kind of pose this question. I wonder if sometimes we miss the first step to simply stop 
and think about who Jesus really is, to see him. Here's a, a question to guide us in our time this morning. Just think about this, hold this. What if the first help that we need, what if the first help that we need when we are in trouble is to see Jesus as he is? That's where the book of Revelation starts. It's just Jesus saying, look at me, this is who I really am. And this is going to speak to where you're at and the challenges that you are facing. So this morning, here's where we're going. Uh, we'll, we'll just kind of touch on the challenges that the church has faced and that we face as churches today. Uh, and then we'll, we'll unpack this vision of Jesus that John saw, what it means, and, uh, and how it relates to the challenges that we face. Uh, but first, we'll, we'll start with a few words on how to read Revelation, uh, because I think for most of us it can be a, a little bit befuddling. I know that question comes up a lot. How do we read this book? So we'll, we'll camp there for just a minute. But let's pray, and we'll look at the scriptures together. Uh, Father God, uh, we come to you knowing that all scripture is breathed into life by you and is useful to edify us in every way. And God, we receive that. And Lord, as we, we come to a part of the Bible that we're perhaps not as familiar with or just find more confusing, we pray that you would be working by your spirit and in this word that you've given us, that you would be working in us in such a way that your words would find good soil. Uh, they would go deep into our hearts, uh, that they would take root there, and that they would grow into lives that are fruitful, lives that look more and more like Jesus. Uh, so God, meet us as we're here this morning. We pray as we worship together in word and in song and prayer and communion in our fellowship. God, in all of it, we pray that you would be glorified. And we pray, God, that you might be working in each of us, drawing us closer to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so a couple words about reading Revelation, yes? Uh, So when we're reading Revelation, just a couple things to maybe keep in mind, and this might be helpful for us as we go through the series, but I think it's it's kind of helpful just to be frank and to be candid about the fact that most of us, when we read Revelation, we find it to be weird. It's not the norm that we are used to in life or even in Scripture. It kind of stands out as one of just a few places that dip into this this genre in Scripture called apocalyptic. And uh, I know apocalyptic for us, that means like, you know, Walking Dead, zombie movies. You know, apocalyptic usually refers to like, oh, the world's fallen apart and all that's left is this dystopian landscape and all this stuff. But in Scriptures, apocalypse is actually something different. It means revealing. And, um, And, well, we often find it to to just be a little weird. Uh, The author Donald Miller, I I appreciate his tongue-in-cheek comments about this. He's talking about first becoming a Christian. He says, I'm reading the Bible, and it's going okay. Maybe I don't understand everything, uh, but, you know, I'm kind of tracking. I'm getting most of it. And then he gets to Revelation, right, where he says this. He says, where the Bible concludes with various creepy hallucinations that in some mysterious way explain the future in which apparently we all slip into Dungeons and Dragons outfits and fight the giant frog people. That's his summary of of Revelation. Um, uh, Now, Revelation communicates largely in symbolism. 
And that's where I, I think sometimes we get lost along the way. What do these images mean? Do I take them as something super literal? Do they signify something else? Uh, C.S. Lewis comments on this, and maybe more helpfully than Donald Miller does. Uh, but he's commenting on these parts of the Bible, and in this, this reading in, on heaven in particular. But he writes this. He says, There's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All the scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, etc., is of course a merely symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. Musical instruments are mentioned because for many people, not all, music is a thing known in the present life which most strongly suggests ecstasy and infinity. Crowns are mentioned to suggest the fact that those who are united with God in eternity share his splendor and power and joy. Gold is mentioned to suggest the timelessness of heaven. Gold does not rust and the preciousness of it. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, my friend, C.S. Lewis. So we read these things, and, and for us, they, they come across kind of weird. In the first century, for the, the first readers, they were not. Uh, this was kind of a recognized way of communication and recognized uh, especially when you had to say something that maybe you didn't want everyone to understand. So John mentions at the beginning of this book that he was writing from the island of Patmos. And this was basically a, a prison colony, a labor camp where they would send people as a rock quarry, and you would go and break stones there on Patmos. It was an island. It was totally isolated. And if, if you were somebody that the Roman Empire felt like they needed to keep isolated from others, Patmos was a good place to send you. Uh, very likely, the reason that John was, was not martyred, like the rest of, of Jesus' first apostles, this was near the end of the first century, and there was a lot of martyrdom that was happening. Uh, very likely the Roman Empire decided it's too dangerous to kill this guy. We can't make a martyr out of yet another follower of Jesus. This is backfiring for us. We keep killing people, and this Jesus movement just keeps growing. So they send him away. They try to silence him instead. And the, the prison censors are reading as letters are going back and forth from the island. And in that, the genre of, of apocalyptic is, is a good way to communicate. Now, the, um, uh, the, the word uh, apocalyptic, and, and also the translation we have for it, revelation, it means just that. It means a revealing. In revelation, you can think of it this way, revelation is a peek behind the curtain. It is a look at the world that's going on behind the world we see. Right? Was anyone a fan of The Matrix? And when was that, late 90s or something? I couldn't get enough of that movie. But kind of this idea that you pull back the curtain and there's this whole other world going on behind the scenes that you can't see. It's there and it's real and it's happening and it's influencing what's going on around us, but we don't always see it. Revelation is about seeing. Seeing what is really happening. And it opens with this picture of seeing Jesus as he is. Uh, maybe one more, one more thing to mention here uh, that's important for us. So one other thing I want you to know as we get into Revelation is it's actually not a book to help churches predict the future. 
Right? I know it's, it's treated that way a lot. A lot of Christians have that view of it. A lot of people who are not Christians kind of have that same view, that, that it's like this Nostradamus book. We read it and we find clues about what's to come. In reality, almost all of the book of Revelation is about the present. There are some parts about the future, but almost all of it is about the present. Uh, their present in the first century and our present now as well. And its purpose is to help churches live Jesus-shaped lives. Right? God's purpose, friends. God's purpose is not for us just to figure out when it is that Christ is coming back. God's purpose for us is that we would be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And Revelation is very much about that. Uh, New Testament professor Scott McKnight, he puts it simply, he says, the purpose of Revelation is to challenge indecisive Christians to full devotion. John is speaking to churches that were hurting and they're trying to figure out what does it mean to live a life that looks like Christ in the midst of the pressures of the empire. That's what Revelation is about. So, that uh, with me so far? Cool. So, that brings us to Revelation chapter 1. Right? Seeing the world as it is. Having the curtain pulled back and seeing Jesus as he is. Now, we want to read that in light of the, the problems that those churches were facing. And we'll talk a lot about these problems in the weeks to come as we get into the different letters. But I, I just want to do a flyover of them now because they kind of relate to the way that Jesus presents himself as well. In the book of Revelation, there are three primary challenges that the churches are facing. And the book keeps coming back to these again and again. Uh, persecution moral compromise or sin, and then false teaching. These are the three challenges. And they're symbolized in the book of Revelation by, uh, by being the dragon's helpers. So the dragon is a character that keeps coming up in Revelation, and the dragon is Satan. Uh, and these three allies of Satan that signify the persecution, moral compromise, and the false teaching are the beast from the sea, the harlot and the beast from the earth, or the false prophet. This is in case you go home this week and you read through Revelation. Look for those. They, uh, they signify these three different challenges. Um, these will, will get unpacked more in the weeks to come, but briefly, here's the scene. First, persecution. So in the Roman Empire, uh, the way religion worked in the Roman Empire was this. You were free to worship any god you wanted. And this was sort of an innovation on the part of the Romans. Previous empires that came through, whether we're talking about Babylon or Persia or whoever kind of the conquering power was at any time, one of the ways that they would try to keep order is they would impose their religion on those that they had conquered. Rome decided this was a losing strategy, and so they came up with a new one. For them, the strategy was everyone gets to have whatever religion they want. The only catch is in addition to your God, you need to just pay a little bit of homage to ours. And their God was Caesar. So the procedure was this. You would be taken to a Roman temple of some sort, and you would go there, and you would take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, and proclaim, Kaiser Kiri, Caesar is Lord. Right? And for the most part, this, this was a great strategy. It worked well for Rome, and part of why they were a dominant superpower for so long in the world. Everyone got to do their own thing. You just had to do, they called it the little act of worship. You just had to participate in the little act of worship 
you know, pinch of incense, that's all. Throw it in the fire. Declare Caesar as Lord and you're, you're good with the empire. You've got no problems here. For the Christians, this was a problem. Their confession was Jesus and Jesus alone is Lord. And so this little act of worship was something that they could not in good conscience do. And persecution was the result. If you refuse this, uh, it could very likely affect your livelihood. It could, depending on who the emperor was at that time and, and how rough they were, it could mean that you end up in prison. It could mean even that you lose your life. Uh, it was a serious, serious thing for the churches. And the question loomed large over the churches. Could they withstand the pressure of the empire? Could they withstand the persecution that was part of their lives? Or were they going to fold? Were they going to compromise? That was the question for them. It looks a lot different for you and I, friends, but we face a different form of the same question. Uh, and I, I always feel like I need to put an asterisk next to the word persecution when we talk about it in our context because it, it doesn't look like it did then and it doesn't look nearly as harsh as it does in most of the world today. We live in a, a country that values religious pluralism, religious freedom, and so persecution is mild. Nonetheless, persecution with a small p is something that you and I, as part of Christ's church, need to think about. How do we deal with the pressure that comes from receiving scorn and contempt from friends, neighbors, colleagues, whatever the case might be? And I I know it comes in a way that's smaller, but listen, if, if it's coming to you, it's real. And it's something that we need to Uh, we need to address, we need to think about in our walks with Christ. So um, if if you're like, no, that makes no sense, we have no persecution. Just think about this. If, um, depending on what circles you run in, if you go to some of your friends and you say to those friends something along the lines of, you know, I'm not sure that America holds a favored place among the nations in God's eyes. That might not be received so well. Or, or if you say with some of your friends, you know, I don't think we as Christians have much of a responsibility to immigrants or caring for the poor, that should just be the government's job or whatever the case might be. With some of your friends, that will not go well. You're going to get voted off the island, right? You, maybe you'll go to a different set of friends and, and you'll say, you know, I believe that the Bible's view of sex and sexuality is correct. Or I believe that, that abortion takes a life. You know, you and another set of friends, those statements might get you voted off the island. There is, there is a, a pressure. Anytime we run up against our society's idols, uh, that we will experience a backlash in that. And Revelation is speaking to that backlash. Uh, persecution. Moral compromise is the second challenge that the churches were facing and, um, you know, you'll, you'll probably find this shocking, really, really hard to believe, but there was a temptation in the church then to lower their standards for what was moral and what wasn't. There was a temptation in the church, I say this tongue-in-cheek because it's, of course, our temptation too. There's a temptation to say, you know, the Bible says this, but I think I'd kind of prefer this. And, and to, uh, to self-impose our own standards of morality rather than accepting the ones that the scripture gives to us. And, 
And the question looming over the church there is, would the church continue to be a holy people, distinct from the world, or would they merely be a slightly sanitized copy of what the world believes and what the world does? The question is the same for you and I. Jesus said, you are salt and light. He said, if the salt uh, loses its saltiness, if it loses its distinctness, it's no longer good for anything. That was the challenge for them then. Will we remain distinct from culture or will we just become a copy of it? And we face the same challenge today. Uh, Third is false teaching. Now, you see this reference in nearly all of the New Testament letters. So already in the first century, this was a significant problem for them. You had those who were going from church to church and they were doing what they could to alter the message of scripture to better suit modern tastes, right? This is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on since the very beginning. Uh, In the scriptures, they're called false prophets or false teachers. They're referred to as either. And it was a major problem uh, in the first century, and particularly when John was writing near the end of the first century. And um, I'm sure you'll you'll see how this works, but uh, in a lot of ways, this is a more deadly issue than mere moral compromise, right? Because it reinforces and it strengthens moral compromise. When, when you know that you are sinning, I mean, that's, that's one thing. You've got to wrestle through and deal with that. But if you become convinced in your mind or somebody else helps to convince you that what I'm doing is not sin, then there's no longer struggle, right? Then that moral compromise becomes normative and it just gets baked into what you're doing. And so... This was, was a, a really deadly challenge to the church. Can we maintain the teaching handed down by Christ and the apostles, or is this going to get changed as the empire presses in on us with its particular challenges and idols? The question that the churches were facing was, will we hold true to what has been given to us, or are we going to change it to better suit our modern tastes? Clearly, that's a challenge for us as well. Challenge for them. Challenge for them, and they didn't have the internet or YouTube. Come on. (laughs) It's a challenge now as well. So, Jesus speaks to these seven churches in the midst of these three challenges. And as we'll see next week and and in the weeks to come as we go through fall, uh, for each church, he's got an encouragement. For each church, there's a correction. And for each church, there's a promise of what obedience will bring. Uh, But first, Jesus starts with this picture of himself. Uh, Verse 1, it's interesting here. Verse 1 says it's, it's not just a revelation from Jesus Christ, but it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Against these challenges, Jesus doesn't offer a solution per se. What he offers is himself. And let's, let's look at the vision that he gives John in particular. Uh, verse 9 is where we'll start. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, that's Sunday, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, 
Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Pause there for just a second. I turned to see the voice. Uh, not just to see the speaker, but to see the voice. I, I can't help but picture here this marvelous phrase. I, I can't help but picture that the experience he was having was, was so thick that he expected almost to see the words, not just the one that was speaking the words. Here's what he saw, what he's told to write and share with the churches. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So it's Sunday. John is in worship by himself. There's no church to worship with. He's in his cell. And something happens. Uh, he realizes he's not alone, and he turns, and Jesus Christ is standing there talking to him. Uh, I wonder about this, because you know, John, when he started following Jesus, he was a very young man, uh, probably the youngest of the 12 apostles, and he spent three years with Jesus, right? He, he knows his face. He knows the way he walks. He knows the sound of his voice. He knows him well. And no doubt John had no trouble recalling Jesus from those days that he was with Jesus on earth, right? Those three years together, I'm sure John could recall at any moment walking along the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. I'm sure he remembered so well the feeding of the 5,000, the Sermon on the Mount, this healing or that healing, this demon being cast out, that uh, leper being healed, uh, of course, Jesus' terrible death and his resurrection. All these would be deeply imprinted on John. But this Jesus is different. There's no question who it is, right? Uh, the, the face is his, the voice is his, yet everything about it is different. This is Jesus risen in power and in glory. Uh, the closest John would have seen to this is the transfiguration, if you know that story, where Jesus appeared in dazzling white and all this. But, uh, but in this picture, the curtain is pulled back. And John is allowed to see Jesus in a way that communicates who Jesus is and communicates in light of the challenges that the churches are facing too. So what Jesus looks like, this says something about who he is. Uh, it's on a really maybe basic level for us. If you walk into a hospital and a, a woman approaches you and she's wearing a long white coat with a name on it and a stethoscope around her neck, by the way she is dressed, you're going to go, oh, that's the doctor, right? Or if, uh, if 
you're coming up to an intersection in your car and the light is out and there's a man there in a blue uniform with a badge on his shirt that's directing traffic, you're going to look at how he's dressed and you'll be like, oh, that's not just a dude directing traffic, that's a police officer. Jesus appears in a particular way and the way that he appears is giving a message to John that he is to pass along to the churches. Notice first, John mentions here where Jesus is standing. Right? It first says that Jesus is standing among the lampstands. And did you catch what the lampstands were? It's okay if you didn't. There is like 17 things going on in this passage. The lampstands are the churches. The first thing that Jesus shows to John is that Jesus is standing right there among the churches. He is present with his people. A strong reminder as, as this vision begins to unfold that Jesus is not separate. He's not distant. He's not removed. He's not watching on from somewhere else as the churches go through what the churches are going through. Jesus is right there present among the lampstands. Next thing John says, he says that, that Jesus looks like a son of man, quote unquote. Uh, if you read the Gospels, you may have noticed this is probably Jesus' favorite self-designation, son of man. He uses it a lot. And in the Gospels and in Revelation, it refers back to the prophet Daniel. And Daniel had this vision of this one that was called a son of man. It looked like a human, but he was somehow more. And Daniel talks about this and And the same imagery is brought into Revelation. It's this fiery, supernatural being who in the book of Daniel is God's appointed king to bring order and justice to the world. And all all the kingdoms of the world bow down to him. And so there's a reminder here in this vision of Jesus' authority, of his authority. And I, I wonder sometimes for the disciples walking around the Sea of Galilee with Jesus, and he refers to himself as the Son of Man, and they're thinking about Daniel, and they're like, where's the fire? You know, where's all the hoopla, all the stuff that comes with the Son? He doesn't look like the Son of Man. He's a dude in a robe. Here's the fire. The curtain's been pulled back, and it's like, oh, this is what Jesus is talking about when he says he's the Son of Man. Authority. All authority, as Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. It's because he is the son of man, present with his churches. Let's add another image onto this, that uh, being the image of a mediator. The next thing that John sees is how Jesus is dressed He's wearing a, a full-length robe with a golden sash around his chest. This, this outfit that Jesus is wearing that John is describing, this is, this is the outfit worn by a priest, a Jewish priest in the temple. And not just any priest, but the high priest. Uh, the golden sash, the extra-long robe, this is the high priest that once a year would go into the temple and make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. John is being reminded that Jesus is the mediator, that whatever is happening with them and and the temptations and the challenges that they are facing, whatever happens in this, they have been made right with God because of what Jesus has done. And the sash is part of this too. 
the fact that the sash is, is around his chest. So the way this works, if, if you're the priest and you're doing your sacrifices, if, if you're on the job, if you're doing the things, you're making the sacrifices, you take that sash, and it's, it's not a sash at that point, it's a belt. It goes around your waist. But when the work is done, when the sacrifices have been made, when it's time for you to rest, well, it comes, comes off of your waist and it goes around your chest as a sash. John sees Jesus as the high priest whose work is completed. The mediation between us and God is done. Nothing more has to happen because in Jesus it is finished. And John sees that visually. He heard those words from the cross. He was there when Jesus declared to the heavens, it is finished. But now he's seeing it before him in this vision that he will be relaying to the churches. Uh, this next part this next part is about Jesus' power. And then these next verses, John is, is trying to describe Jesus' physical appearance. And you can feel him kind of struggling his way to the right words here. Right? His hair was white like wool. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. Uh, this image, too, is a callback to the book of Daniel. Daniel talked about the Son of Man, and he describes that person. And in this vision, uh, John is able to see Jesus looking like the Son of Man from, from Daniel's prophecy. But in Daniel, he also talks about the Ancient of Days, right? Which was, Daniel also is communicating in, in the midst of an empire, and he's using cryptic language. But Ancient of Days was code for God the Almighty. And here in this part of the prophecy, he's describing that. John is describing that Jesus looks not just like the Son of Man, but like the Ancient of Days that Daniel described. It's a statement of the divinity of Jesus, that he's not just man, he's also God. That both things are happening in this being, in Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And John sees their power. He sees the power of God. And, and maybe just to zoom in on one part of this, right? You've got the hair and the eyes and the whole thing. But the feet, the feet are really interesting to me. And, and I wonder if these really spoke to the churches too. It would speak to me, I think, if I was in their place. But uh, again, it's a callback to the book of Daniel. But there, there's a vision that happens where there's, uh, there's this huge statue. Uh, huge and massive and imposing and powerful. But Daniel sees that its feet are made of clay. And as a result, it can't stand. It eventually falls. And this was a picture Daniel was given of that particular empire of Babylon and its future, right? It seemed like the world's greatest superpower, nothing will ever dislodge it. But Daniel sees, no, no, no. It actually can't stand on its own. It's going to fall because those feet are going to crumble. So when John sees Jesus, he sees the feet. And he looks a bit like that statue from Daniel. But the feet aren't clay. They're burnished bronze. This statue, this kingdom, is going nowhere. It is going to stand through everything that comes at it. Jesus is communicating to the churches his power 
made available for them. Nothing is going to shake it. Nothing. Uh, Final image here is the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. It's truth. Right? And this is an image you might be familiar with, but it comes up in the scriptures a lot, that the sword often stands for the word of God. Uh, The sword is the source of truth. Uh, And Jesus takes this image into this vision he gives John of who he is. That the words that come out of his mouth are, as Hebrews says, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide the soul and spirit even, the way that a sword could divide the bones from its marrow. There's truth in Jesus that uh, these churches are able to rely on. Now, what does all this mean? What does this mean for these churches as Jesus presents this image of himself to them? Uh, What does it mean for us as this image is presented to us too? Uh, Not all our struggles fall into those three buckets of persecution and moral compromise and false teaching, but a lot of them do. But just to take those and think about those and come back to that opening question of, What if the first thing, the main thing that we need when we're facing challenges is just to see Jesus as he is? What if as much as we want to have like a, you know, a a truth nugget that's just going to unlock everything and we're like, oh, there it is. I'll just do that. Everything's solved. What if the first thing we need, what if the main thing we need is to see Jesus? What if that's where it starts? What if in those times where we're calling out and we're saying, God, I just need a rescue. I need you to dive in right now and just change my circumstances, upend all of them, right? And, and he may, you know, sometimes he does. But what if the main thing, the first thing you and I need is just to see Jesus as he is, if that's the starting place, right? And in, in the church, gosh, we're, we're famous for chasing after this new program, this new strategy, this new whatever, But what if sometimes we miss the first thing, we miss the main thing, which is just taking a good, hard look at Jesus as he is and letting the rest flow out of that. Maybe it's it's worth considering here this morning, friends. If you are in some way facing persecution, lowercase p, if you're facing... Uh, challenges to your faith from those who would hold you in contempt, those who would scorn you. This picture of Jesus, this picture of Jesus who's present, who's standing among the lampstands, who's not removed from you in that struggle, but is right there. Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, is his. Uh, The one who cannot be shaken, the one with the bronze feet, Nothing, we're told in the book of Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And even if, and I know it's unlikely for you and I, but we have brothers and sisters around the world for whom it's a reality this very moment. What if even death was on the table as a result of this persecution? Well, Jesus declares that he holds the keys to death and to Hades, that even that cannot separate us from the love of God. No matter how intense the pressure you and I might feel from the world around us to compromise, to cave, to give in, 
Jesus reminds us in this vision that he is enough, that he is strong and he is present. Or what if your biggest challenge is just the, the temptation to compromise in this area or that, the temptation to sin in one way or another? We're reminded in this picture that Jesus is our great high priest, that even when we do fail, that there is forgiveness for us, that his grace is more than enough poured out on our lives, that the high priest has finished his work, that nothing else needs to be done but for you and I to receive and say, yes, even when I fail, there is a remedy for my sins. And as we live in a time uh, where we're told to believe all sorts of things and not always sure what the right things to believe are, the one who speaks words like a sword coming out of a mouth, the, the one who speaks truth that is absolute and unshakable, assures us that there is a path forward, there is a way to know what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false, as those things are rightly divided by the word of God. There is a way, friends, in whatever challenges we face, in Jesus, to find our way through. That's what this picture is about. This morning, as we respond in a minute in communion, I want you to hold in your mind this picture of Jesus. This picture of Jesus, not just the the rabbi walking along the Sea of Galilee, but Jesus as the one sitting at the right hand of God in all glory and power. All that we need is found in him. The question for us, friends, is will we lean into this Jesus that makes himself available to us? Let's pray together.